We're uh, moving through Ephesians. We're in chapter 5. And, and this week we're going to hear from Paul. He's talking a little bit about the situation in Ephesus and how, that's gonna, how, how they're, they're going to have to change the way they do things. You know, we've got a modus operandi. We have a way that we do stuff in this life. And, and, and there's a, a change that's happened in Ephesus where they, they had this way that they were doing things and, and it had to change because stuff had happened, because life had happened, circumstances had changed, context had changed, culture had changed. Why isn't our evangelism working? Why isn't our evangelism working? And, and when I say our, I'm not just talking about Coast Valley Church. I'm, I'm talking about the church in North America. That's really the church in the West. I'm talking about um, the fact that in, in Europe, uh, church attendance has been plummeting since the 1920s and 30s after the Great War. I'm talking about the fact that uh, church attendance and religious faith and conviction in Christian faith has been uh, beginning to subside here in the United States of America, traditionally the most Christian, the most faithful country in Western civilization. Now, evangelicalism and every other form of Christian commitment is beginning to fail. And yet I submit that it's not that we don't want to share the good news. I submit that it's not that you don't want to impact the people around you, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, I don't even want to suggest that you're not doing it. I think that you are. I know that I've been ineffective. Uh, For me, typically, this is what happens. Um, I meet people who um, aren't believers, and uh, I, I really enjoy my atheist friends. And so I like to, to, to work on them, to try and bring them to faith because I want them to have the same uh, joy and hope that I have. I have a friend, Atheist John. He uh, works um, at JPL, the uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory for NASA. He's a smart guy, real sharp dude. Uh, ex-Christian, in fact. He, um, he grew up in, in, a, in a family of faith, a very uh, intense family of faith, and he walked away. And so I spend a lot of time arguing with Atheist John. I don't see him as much anymore, but we used to go head-to-head when I lived up in Pasadena. And we would get into yelling arguments. I'd be like, God exists. He says, no, he doesn't. I'm like, yes, he does. No, he doesn't. Why are you so angry about it? Atheist John, still an atheist. When I was in high school, I used to fight with uh, Lutheran Nicole. Uh, she she was she was walking away from Lutheranism at the time, and now she's far beyond it. She's she's left Lutheranism. But I used to fight with her all the time about Christian faith, about the resurrection, about miracles, about this and that, because I wanted her to be committed. I wanted her to believe. I believed. I knew. I had experienced this good thing, and I wanted it for her too. Why wasn't evangelism working? Some of us have given up trying, right? We don't even bother. Uh, we're, we're at work, and you know, you're, you're just looking around, and you're like, I just want to get by. I, I don't want to deal with this. I don't know how. Um, I, I feel like if I, if, I'm, if, I, if I start to talk about this stuff, it's just going to disrupt like, a really good working environment. People are going to be like, look, if you want to talk about you know, the Rams coming back to L.A., that's awesome. But when you start talking about you know, Jesus or your politics, I... I no, stick a fork at me, I'm done. I don't want anything to do with this. Let's just remain friends. 
You don't want to be offensive. You don't want to feel like you're crossing a line. You don't want to re- lose a great relationship that you have with somebody. And you think, well, maybe in the future, maybe in the future, if I build up this great relationship with this person that I enjoy, that I love, that I care about, then eventually, eventually, I'll have a chance to share. Some of us just have no idea how to begin. You see this person, a friend, a relative, sometimes a close a member of your family, and you can see the despair, you can see the hopelessness, and you're like, if you would just give Jesus a try, and you don't know how to get it going. Some of us don't because we have uh, past experiences with evangelism that are no good. Sometimes we have wrecked relationships because we, it just, when we started saying what we said, um, that person just had no time and walked away, and we missed that person. I remember once I was on an airplane, and uh, the guy across the, the aisle from me, he was a, a Moravian, and he spent the entire flight from uh, Charlotte to Orange County, it's a long flight, uh, trying to get me to believe in Jesus. And I kept telling him, man, I already believe. And he just wouldn't stop. <laughs> and I was thinking, boy, I, I don't want to be that guy. You know, he just, he crossed a line, he got in my face, and, and I mean, for what? I, he just turned me off. In fact, at that point, I was like, I don't want to evangelize anymore. I think deep down, every single person here who, um, who's come to faith and who deeply believes in, in the faith and who loves this church, I think every one of us have a dream, right? And in our, this is my dream, maybe you share it. Um, I, I think you probably do. In my dream, so I've got a bunch of people in my life who um, just aren't you know, into Jesus or, or church or Christianity or whatever. And in my dream, in my dream, one of these people walks up to me and is like, Tom, I just feel so guilty about my sins. And I just really feel like I need forgiveness. If only there was a God who would do that. And I'd be like, hey, I got something for you. Have some good news. Let me tell you the truth. That's my dream. I keep hoping it's going to happen. It never does. I wish that it weren't this heart-pounding, tense, awful, nerve-wracking experience where I feel like I'm divulging something that's going to like wreck everything that I have with this person. What if our problem is not that we lack courage? What if we're thinking evangelism wrong? What if we're thinking about evangelism um, that, that, that probably worked in a different context? It really fit in, in a time that maybe we're not in anymore. What if the way we conceive of evangelistic outreach is just not set to the culture and the time and the context we're living in? What if something has happened out there that makes it almost impossible for us to effectively communicate what has happened in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's not going to look like it, but I suggest to you at the beginning that our text today points us in a direction to explain that and to help us think through it. Let's read it together. This is Ephesians 5, uh, 15 to 17. See then that you walk circumspectly, uh, walk carefully, tread carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days that we're living in, they're evil. Therefore, don't be unwise, but understand, perceive, grasp, intuit what the will of the Lord is. 
I know that doesn't sound like an evangelism text. If you're going to do an evangelism text, it's like, you know, go out into the, you know, all the world and baptize the name of the Father and Son. Isn't that how we're supposed to hear it, right? Well, I suggest that this is actually an evangelism text because what's going on is that Paul is reacting and he's, he's helping a church that he's been with, he's lived with for two years, that he's left. He's helping this church begin to move from um, a pre to post riot mentality. And I want to explain what that means. He's moving from a pre to post riot mentality. The, uh, when, when Paul got to Ephesus, when he got to Ephesus, um, he, uh, he, he just operated really boldly, kind of like how I imagine uh, really good evangelists operate. And we actually have some in our church. Um, he went to places like this, and he would like stand out and he would just yell about the Lord. In fact, we, we read, you can read, you can see how he did it if you want to. Um, after our time, you can just go to Acts 19 and you can, you can read the story of what Paul did when he first got to Ephesus. First thing he does, he rolls to the uh, Jewish synagogue, um, and he, and he tries to, you know, get the, the Jews there to, to, to listen to him. And he goes right in the middle of worship services and he's like, this, that, the other thing. And then they don't listen. And so then Paul goes to a place called the School of Tyrannus. Um, it sounds like there was a philosopher in the area who operated a school that probably taught reading and writing and rhetoric. Um, and so Paul like probably rented a spot or maybe he knew the guy. And, and, so, and so every afternoon, uh, Paul would sit in this school and anyone who, who came, he would just kind of tell them what's, what's going on with, with Jesus. And he would just shout it out. Now this actually was tremendously effective uh, we have accounts in Acts 19 of all the amazing things that happened. Like there's this part where um, all these people in the, in the area were, were caught up in like witchcraft or what we might think of as like divination. And so they brought all of their, all of their magic books and they had this huge bonfire. And the text tells us that they blew like $10 million worth of books in, in this bonfire. To, to, because these people were turning from, from paganism, turning from that and, and turning to Jesus. And there's this incredible movement where the entire city of Ephesus is shaken to its core and people are coming and they're believing because Paul's out there every day just belting it from the rooftops. This is the truth. This is the truth about Jesus. And it's not just a book bonfire. Uh, Paul actually starts impacting the worship in, um, in the temple, the temple of Diana or Artemis. Um, he, he, he's so effective that people stop believing that Diana's real. They start turning to Yahweh God and turning away from Diana Artemis. And, and, and as, a, as a result, the economy, the very economy of Ephesus, one of the strongest in the ancient world, is turned upside down over this two-year period where all this news about Jesus for the first time descends on people's ears and they turn from idols and they turn to the Lord. And then the people who are making those idols that people are turning away from, the people who are writing those books of divination and magic who are not out of a job, start a riot. A really, really big riot. The riot ends here in the amphitheater in Ephesus. I told you a couple months ago, but I, I was literally sitting like right there in the center of the screen uh, in, in 2012, or I'm sorry, 2002. I was sitting there and I heard someone, uh, there was a, a, a tour group, and they read Acts 19. And I was sitting there as he reads the part where all the people of the city have been turned out because of the gospel are sitting there in these stands. It's full, full of capacity. And they're screaming out, they're roaring, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana. 
And Paul, he's, he's right at the edge. He's like, he's standing like outside the, the amphitheater and he's, and he's trying to run in because he wants to tell the good news. He wants to say, no, not Diana, Jesus. And so he's running in and the elders of the church are holding him back. They're literally holding him and, and they pretty much just club him over the head and they send him out of the city on a boat. They're like, Paul, if you go in there, they're going to tear you limb from limb. Paul never returns to the city of Ephesus. He dies before he can come back. He tries once. He literally tries like a year later because he's so concerned for this church. And the elders, they won't let him come into the city. In fact, they meet him uh, to the south in Miletus. And he prays for them. And they say, Paul, whatever you do, don't come in because it's different now, man. This is not the Ephesus you remember. This is post-riot Ephesus. This is changed culture Ephesus. This is lay low Ephesus. Because if you stand up or you put your head up, it's going to get chopped off Ephesus. People aren't surprised about the news of Jesus anymore. They've heard his name. What the thing is though, Paul, and now when they hear Jesus' name, they don't think, oh, this sounds amazing. I'd love to be liberated. What they think is, oh, this guy's going to wreck our economy. He's going to destroy our city. And anyone who follows him is suspect and, and should be treated hostily and harassed and put down. This isn't pre-riot Ephesus, Paul. It's post-riot Ephesus. I suggest that we live in post-riot America. And I think that when we think of evangelism, we think of pre-riot evangelism. We live in a post-riot culture, but think pre-riot evangelism. You know, this culture is way different. In Orange County specifically, I just read a report um, just a week and a half ago about the changing demographics in Orange County. You know, uh, this is the, 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 Orange County is where Nixon is from. Um, It's one of the most conservative um, and politically Republican places in the country. Um, it, it's the locus of one of the strongest, most vibrant evangelicalisms that you can find anywhere, especially in an urban or highly populate, populated environment. And yet that's changing. That's changing. They, they say that in just 10 years, in 10 years, uh, the, the landscape's going to look different. We're not going to have the middle classes disappearing from Orange County. Uh, it's being replaced by an upper class and, and, and a working class uh, because people can't afford to live here anymore. Uh, it's becoming radically ethnically diverse where Orange County used to be um, basically white Protestant Christians. It is now very, it's becoming very, very diverse. Um, and, and as you, as you uh, go to North County, you begin to see that. Um, people from all over and all walks of life are coming in. Uh, the elites in our culture are no longer Christian. They might go to church once every once in a while because it helps with business, but they're not committed like they used to be. In fact, if we look around, we start to realize that this Orange County and the place I grew up in is no longer respectful and welcoming and happy about faith. Instead, it's becoming hostile and suspicious. Jesus is something you do at home or in seclusion here in Orange County. And you certainly, certainly don't bring him up at work. 
With that in mind, this post-riot Orange County in mind, let's look at the text a little bit more deeply. See then that you walk circumspectly. Really, uh, if you put it in English, say, tread carefully. Tiptoe. Imagine, if you will, a minefield. And everywhere you go, you're in danger of getting blown up. Don't, don't walk like foolish people, but wise people. We'll, we'll talk about foolish and wise in a second. Redeeming the time. This is really just an, an idiom for make the most of an opportunity. Walk carefully, tread carefully, and then whenever there's an opportunity, seize it, because you're not going to get many. They're going to be hard to find. And so you, you got all this time. You need to save all the little bits of it. I mean, literally, the, the, the idiom is like buy the time. Maybe even ransom the time. It's like the time, and this is because the days are evil, the time is, the time is seized. It's owned by the enemy. He's got it all. He, he's running the show here, and, and the minutes and the seconds and the hours, they're, they're ticking by. And you're looking around, and, and any time, any time you have a moment where you can just seize a five-minute moment for the kingdom, you've got to grab it. Don't miss that opportunity because they're fewer and fewer and fewer because the days are evil. The days are, if you've been with us in Ephesians, you know that the way the world is run, it's run by the prince of the sky realms, the enemy. The enemy owns Ephesus. This is the powers, the principalities, the devil. He runs Ephesus, and I believe he's beginning to run Orange County, post-riot America. He's in control. He has the strongholds. The days are evil. And because he's doing that, he's fortifying his positions in every single moment you have. Every chance you've got, you've got to seize it. That means your post-riot life is low profile. If it's a minefield and the knives are out, you have to find a way to stay low. Because in post-riot Ephesus, in post-riot Orange County, if you don't, you're going to lose something. You're going to lo- lose a lot of stuff. And here's the worst part. This is why it's effective for the enemy. is because we have something to lose, especially those of us who have families. And we'll, we'll talk about it in a different sermon, but one of the reasons Paul's able to do what he does is because he's single. He doesn't live only in Ephesus. He can bail out and he can go do what he does elsewhere. We've got roots. We don't have the opportunity to just stand up and get cut down. There's a reason why Spider-Man wears a mask. He doesn't walk around, he's like, hey, it's me, Peter Parker. Look, I can shoot like webs out of my wrists. Awesome, right? Let's stop crime. No, because he knows that there's people out there who are going to find his family and beat him up. Post-riot life is low profile. But it's also savvy and opportunistic. If the possibilities and, and the time, they're few and far between, and they're hard to grasp, and they're hard to catch, then we've really got to be attentive, and we've really got to be looking around, and we've really got to be tactical and strategic, and when we see it, we've got to go for it. This language, not as fools, but wise. Don't be unwise, but understand the will of the Lord. This is interesting. Um, the, uh, the words for wise in verse 15, it's like the vanilla classic word for wise in Greek. It just any kind of wisdom falls under Sophia, and that's, that's kind of what um, you get there. 
But when you get down to verse 17, do not be unwise, but understand, those are interesting terms. Um, in the Greek, uh, under, under unwise is phronesis. Um, Offron is how it's there. But it, this is an interesting kind of wisdom. If you remember, uh, Jesus once says something like, um, what does he say? Uh, uh, you know, be, be, uh, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Right? Crafty. That's phronesis. That's that word. You, you're, not, you're not wise like Socrates. You're wise like a salesman. You're wise like a smooth operator. You're wise like an agent. You're wise like a spy. You're crafty. Because you have to keep a low profile, but you still have a mission, right? You still have a mission. It, it, and before, understand. That's not just like comprehend. It really is the word more for like intuit or, um, or grasp, recognize, Okay? So here's a person who's crafty, who's an agent, who's sly, who's slippery, and who's looking around, and then sees it, sees that moment, and then grasps it, goes for it, sees the will of the Lord. You know, there's two wills of the Lord. There's the big W will of the Lord, and that's kind of broad. It's like God's seeking to win, something like that. The kingdom of God is going to be all in all. That's the big W will of the Lord. But there's also a little W will of the Lord. And that's kind of the tactical moment to moment. How am I going to work out that big will now? Right? Here I am. I know that Jesus wants to seize Orange County. He wants to own Mission Viejo and San Juan Capistrano and Irvine and, 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 and Dana Point and all. He wants it. I know that. That's the big will, you know, work of the Lord. But there's also that kind of, but how are we going to do it? What kind of little will do we have? How do we work out the details of that? Well, we're crafty, intuitive. That's how you live in a world that isn't foolish, but wise. In pre-riot Ephesus, in pre-riot Orange County, you get out there and you say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And people are like, ooh, neat. In post-riot Ephesus, and in post-riot Orange County, you got to take a different tack. You have to be low-profile, savvy, opportunistic. Here it is. Effective post-riot evangelism makes the good news good news. Effective post-riot evangelism makes the good news good news. You know what it's like to get good news. Uh, our house has been um, totally destroyed this summer. <laughs> We've been in and out. There's been floods and leaks. There's, uh, right now, the ceiling is still torn out of the downstairs, but they're going to start working on it tomorrow. I know what good news sounds like. Good news is when I walk in and my parents are like, hey, everything's done. It's all fixed. That immediately, I'm like, oh, oh, thank heavens. That, I have needed to hear that for months on end. I have been a parched man in a desert, and here is water. I have been lost, and now I am found. You hear amazing grace. 
And yet, when I'm sitting on the other aisle of that airplane, and this dude's like, you've got to believe in Jesus. And I'm like, I have. And he's like, seriously, you need to believe in Jesus. I'm like, okay. It doesn't feel like good news, does it? It's starting to irritate me. Now, just add in a situation where when I start to get irritated by the good news, then I'm like, yeah, you know that business you've got? <laughs> you know those kids you're trying to feed? You're not going to do well here anymore, pal. That's the situation we've entered. And so our mission, our goal, our little W will of the Lord is to figure out how to make the big GN good news the little GN good news. We believe it's good news, but here's what we don't believe, and we're kind of right. It's not good news to others. They've heard about this Jesus, and they don't like him because his followers are intolerant bigots or what have you. When I was in Japan, um, <laughs> I would witness to people I remember witnessing to my friend Machida. I was like, look, man, you've done a lot of bad stuff. And he really had. I mean, Machida-san was no saint at all. I mean, he was just, he was, he was an atheist. He was agnostic, amoral. He just kind of did what he liked. And he was a part of a culture that did a lot of stuff that the Lord doesn't love. And I'd be like, you need some forgiveness. And he was like, you think? Really? I actually kind of like what I'm doing. I'm like, oh, okay. I, I, I lived for two years in this country and nobody ever wanted to be forgiven for anything. They didn't care. They were like, like, uh, yeah, sin, okay, I guess. That sounds like a neat category you've invented. That's great. Good, good for you. It was only after I left Japan and I was reading a book that I, I put two and two together. It was, about, it was by a missionary who had spent time in Japan and, and I mean, less than 1% Christian country and had been hammering people with the forgiveness of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, and no, no, no traction, zero, nothing. And finally one day he goes, he goes, your shame, Jesus bore on the cross. And this guy who had failed his family broke down in tears and came to Jesus for the first time. Because in that culture, they don't care about right and wrong in a way. What they really care about is honor and shame. And there was a way to, to, to get the gospel into that language, into Japanese, to translate it first from Greek to English and then from English to Japanese so that it started to, to, to make sense and to be heard well, here, it's different. We, people here, um, that's not their issue. Their issue is a little bit different in our, in our post-riot um, Orange County, our post-riot uh, America. And, and I would say that our practical tactics, like the way that we go about getting people to be sensitized to the gospel, is by making them realize that they are sick to death. People here don't know that they're sick. They believe they're great. And this is the reason for this is not that they're not sick and it's not that they're great. It's that they don't think. So here's the kind of thing that a savvy operator, that a low-profile, savvy, opportunistic Christian operator does here in South County. You could, this, point out tensions and exacerbate them. Okay, I got, uh, you know, Atheist John. Atheist John. So your worldview says that you're just basically a biological machine and you have these appetites and so you go around and you just seize them and you fill yourself up with you know, meeting whatever need you have or your desire or whatever. And yet every time we talk, you're like the most oppressed person I know. Do you think that maybe there's like a, a tension there? 
do you think there might be something where you're, maybe your worldview's not right? Maybe it's not accurately characterizing what it's like to be human? I mean, you can explain it in all these amazing ways, and yet, if you were right, if your worldview was correct, and the way that you're living was in keeping with that, you should be very, very satisfied, because you're wealthy, you do a lot of things that people, that I don't think you should, but you do, and you, it seems, you seem to be, you know, you like it, I mean, and yet, and yet, I know, and you know, that you're depressed, Do you think there might be some connection between those things? Atheist John, you believe that there is no such thing as love or meaning in the world. The reason, by the way, that Atheist John thinks that is because he's a smart guy. And he recognizes that if there's no God, and um, if the universe is just physics, then things that we think of like love aren't real. They're illusions that we create. Meaning is an illusion that we create. Now, if that's the case, then why, Atheist John, do you love your wife? Draw out the implications of beliefs. John, you have these beliefs, and yet if you draw out the implications of them, then you start to realize that there is a strong disconnect between what you think the world is like and the way that you feel it is like, the way that you know internally, deeply, that it is. Wait, you're telling me that you're racked with shame and guilt over the way that you've treated someone? Maybe there's an ultimate reason for that. You know, if we connect people's beliefs to their behaviors and their behaviors to their consequences, like connect the dots for them, they start to see that there is something deeply, profoundly wrong with the way that the world, they say it is, and the way that they actually experience it. The way people believe the world is has made them sick to death. And yet day in and day out, they delude themselves with the illusion they are not. The savvy operator, the post-Ephesus, post-riot Ephesus operator, goes in and finds ways to, to make it clear to people, to connect the dots for them, to realize that there is a reason, a deep theological reason, why things are so out of sorts. That's what we do. All our job is at the beginning, all of our job at the very beginning is to make them see the disconnect between what they believe and what they know deeply in their hearts to be true. They did this in the uh, 70s and 80s. Um, Ultrasound technology was developed in the uh, late 1930s, early 1940s. Ultrasound, apparently, um, it's kind of like what bats do, where they can they use sound waves to um, create like images to kind of get a sense of the room, right? Because they bounce off the the, the um, cave walls, and so they know where they are, echolocation. Well, ultrasound is similar to that, but it's way more precise. And what they can actually do is, and, and you've seen this if you've been a part of a pregnancy, is they can they can put an ultrasound machine on a, on a woman's um, stomach and see into the womb, and they can see a baby. Well, this uh, ultrasound technology became widespread in the late 70s and 80s. At the time that uh, Roe v. Wade passed, there was actually a majority of people in the country who thought that was kind of a good thing. Since then, with the introduction of ultrasound, people's opinions about abortion have become radically more conservative because they have this view that, yeah, you should be able to do whatever you want. I mean, America, right? But then they also have this view of a child that they can see. And so suddenly there's a major tension that's been brought out between this belief, do what you want, it's awesome, and wait, we probably shouldn't kill kids. And you bring those two together and suddenly, suddenly people see at a very deep level that there is a major issue between what they believe and what they do. And they start to recognize, wait, 
maybe I should reformulate what I think about this activity that everyone should be able to do. And, and we've seen the, the opinions, the public opinion polls since the introduction of ultrasound have radically changed American opinions about abortion. Because abortion points out, or ultrasound points out the tensions in their beliefs and exacerbates them. It draws out the implications of their belief. Well, if you think anyone should be able to do what they want and, you, and they're, they want to terminate this thing, yeah, there's going to be bad things. It connects the belief to the behavior and the behavior to the consequences. Well, you believe this thing, it lets you do this, and look what happens. To make the good news good news, help people realize that they are sick to death. Imagine. Imagine that person or people in your life. The ones that, you know, you've been, you've hammered them on Facebook. You've really told them what's true on Facebook and they just don't listen. Those people in your family that you've had explosive arguments with. Imagine what it would be like if instead of these evangelistic wars, they recognized that something was wrong and they looked at your life and they said, maybe, maybe I should try church with you just, just once. In college, my buddy Dan, um, he uh, you know, came from an atheist family. His dad was a professor at University of Vermont. And I remember we were on the same hall freshman year. And uh, Dan was, I mean, the coolest guy. Like, he was awesome. A redhead, so he had a leg up on the competition. But really, really cool guy. Uh, everyone loved him. Kind of like the leader of our hall, in a way. Um, and yet there was something wrong, deeply. And uh, my friends, uh, Chad and Mark and I, um, would talk to him, you know, every once in a while, late night, hang out. And it turned out that he... Um, just had tremendous guilt about uh, a girl he'd left behind in Vermont. Some things that they'd done and, and all this. And, and in that moment, you know, we were able to say, wait a minute. But you believe all this stuff. Everything's perfect, right? You've got it all figured out. And yet, this is where you live. This is where your heart. This is what... Don't you think that maybe there's some disconnect there? And he sat with that. A couple weeks went by. And one day he uh, knocks on my door in the morning. He's like, hey, man, I just got to tell you something's up. I'm like, all right, what's up? He said, yeah, um, last night I just had this crazy dream. And in it, I saw, you know, his girlfriend, um, I saw Marie. And, and there was like this, this crack between us. And then I was thinking about some of the stuff that, you know, I heard when we went to your um, intervarsity meeting and, and, and like a, a cross appeared in between us. And then I, I woke up and I just felt, you know, uh, so I went and I took a shower and in the shower I said, okay, Jesus, if you're real, save me. And I finally felt peace. Imagine an army of Dan's, 
of people who deeply felt the tensions between what they say they believe and how they live, who deeply see the implications. That is what we can create if we focus not on proclamations, but instead making the good news good news. Father, I pray that we will be people of good news, that on our lips will be grace, that we will help this sick culture to recognize its illness, that we'll stay low but we'll be on the lookout, seeking every opportunity we have in these evil days to bring people just a little bit closer to recognizing the problem and seeking you as the solution. Make us a new kind of evangelist, God. Send your spirit to give us the words of good news, the words of forgiveness, the words of hope in ways that people will understand them. Thank you, God, for redemption. Thank you for hope. Thank you for grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.